You may know you're listening to this show along the Marketing Podcast Network, but did you know there are other great shows on MPN to help your business? Christy Heiler hosts a fantastic podcast called Own It. Christy, tell us more about the show. Own It is all about celebrating women and non-binary advertising agency owners. We talk about buying out of the Boys Club of Advertising because less than 1% of ad agencies are owned by women. And where can people subscribe? You can find the podcast at untilyouownit.com. We're also on the Marketing Podcast Network at marketingpodcast.net. And of course, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. You heard her. Go subscribe. Hey there. Have you been looking to expand your impact and reach? Then you must learn to tell your story. Don't know where to start or how to begin? The Ultimate Speaker's Guide will walk you through what you need to know step-by-step in a faster way. Click the link in the description to get started. In our world, there's many distractions, right? And you can't navigate through that if you're handed your vision from somebody else. You need to find your own vision, your own voice, your own way. And that's how you get forward. Welcome to the Bridge to You podcast, hosted by yours truly, Monique Russell, where we focus on diversity, inclusion, and understanding for Black cultures through conversations that help us connect to ourselves and each other. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Bridge to You podcast. I'm your host, Monique Russell. Today, I have in my guest chair someone who is amazing. I think he probably was the first one to discover Mars, but I'm not going to say that. He is a global traveler. He's a patent holder, a philanthropist. He's a motorcycle rider. He's an entrepreneur, tech advisor to the CTO of Microsoft, and really so much more. If I were to read all of his accolades, it would be the entire interview. So we're going to stop right here and jump right in. Mr. William Adams, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you, Monique. So we're going to jump right in. I always ask my guests, if you could choose to be anywhere in the world, where would you choose to be and why? It's actually a pretty easy one. I would choose to be with my family wherever we are. Um, And why? Because they're my family. (laughs) And that's (laughs) who I love the most. For me, it's not about places. Like, yeah, I could be here in Washington State. I could be in California. We spent nine months in California during the pandemic because it was sunny. We spend time in, you know, the Virgin Islands, in India, Africa, China, whatever. But the most important thing is just being with my family because that's who I care about the most, right? Definitely. I could relate to that because what, what good is it to be in a beautiful place if you're all alone? Yeah. And that's not the life I want. You know, it's like, I'm 57 and most of my life I've spent with some form of family. And I'm not one of those guys who's like, I'm a loner. I'm alone. Finally. Yay. It's like, nah, I'm a family guy. (laughs) This is what I'm talking about. I have been reading so much about you in preparation for our interview. And I'm so excited. I just have to contain myself. There was something that you mentioned when you were talking about being your authentic self and the way that you just showed up. You were authentic. And as I was listening, I said to myself, wow, it it sounds like Williams did not have the story told to him that he had to work twice as hard to get half as much. No, but I then I think story. you did. I yes, did have that you story. did. <laughs> so my question is, how do you begin to shift 
that narrative that you were conditioned with? Yeah, that was a there was a very specific time in my life. So I was previously married, going through a divorce when I was about 40 and sitting on a uh, beach in Hawaii, just kind of contemplating life, right? It's like, well, okay, that marriage is done. What did I do wrong? What am I, how am I going to avoid that, you know, in the future? What do I have to change about myself? You know, it's this whole cathartic thing. And one of the realizations I had was just exam- re-examining the whole twice as much to get, you know, whatever. And that echoed in my mind all the time, you know, especially being at a tech company where you're striving, 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 gotta get the ball, gotta get the ball, you know? And I just got in a quiet moment and said, I'm good enough. I don't have to be twice as good. I am more than adequate, you know? And I just settled my mind and went, I am still gonna be who I am. I'm still brilliant. I'm still the accomplished software engineer that I've always been for the last 20, 30 years. None of that's gonna change. But I'm going to relax myself and say, you are good enough. You can be in the room. You deserve to be in the room. Uh, No one holds anything over you. Uh, You're okay. So stop beating yourself up and stop trying to uh, act like you're not deserving until you're twice as good. It's like, I'm already twice as good, you know, (laughs) and and I'm okay with that. I, I don't care whether they give me that extra bonus or not. That doesn't define me. So I just relaxed, right? Mm. And said, I am more than good enough. Thank you, mom, for getting me this far. I've made it. I'm good enough. And whatever happens from here on out is whatever happens. So that was it. It was just a moment in time where I just kind of settled down, calmed my mind and woke up, right? Wow. And this moment in time was in Hawaii, Mm -hmm. right? And you were by yourself. Yeah. Yeah. And you were 40. Yep. So multiple things happened. If I liken this period in your life, it's almost like the way we experience the pandemic, because I think sometimes we need that thing. We need that situation or that event that helps us to get still, get quiet, to reevaluate and then replace the old story. So you didn't just say, I'm not taking the, I got to be twice as hard story, but you replaced it with a new one. I am good enough. I've always been good enough. I don't have to work twice as hard. So once you started that new story, how did you show up? How did your behavior change when you went to work, when you started connecting with other people? Yeah, well, that was right at a time when um, I was on that beach because I was headed for India. I had uh, taken up a job to train all of our engineers how to be better engineers uh, in India because it was a growing development center, right? So I trained them and I trained all the managers and, you know, it's a pretty big job. Um, So the way I showed up was I just kind of said, all right, I'm William A. Adams. I have 20, 30 years experience at that point. I was like 2006. I know more than these people do. That's why they brought me here. So it's certainly my confidence. Again, it's like ignore the paycheck and all the rest. It's like you want me here because of what I know. So I'm the authority. Okay, what do I have to prove? <laughs> you know, <laughs> I am the authority here and you brought me. So that was enough for me to just settle into that confidence of like, I'm desired here. Mm-hmm. I don't have anything to prove. You know, I've already done my proving. So I'm confident that I am good enough. I'm confident of what I have to say is more than adequate for the job at hand. 
uh, I've trained engineers all my life, you know, or all my professional career. So this isn't like some extraordinary thing. It's like, oh my God, they're going to find me out. It's like, all I have to do is show up and be who I am. And, and that's what they want. Right. Yes. Uh, so that was the transformation. It was just a confidence. I mean, I probably always had some form of confidence, even though I was kind of a shy guy as a kid. But that's just confidence is like, you know, if I were an Olympic athlete, I'd be your same boat. <laughs> so I love that. I'm already inspired and empowered. And so you went to India. I have multiple questions coming in my brain around that whole experience. Mm. Was it your first time? What, what was the cultural shock or difference in terms of yeah. training? Yeah. But when you touch on that, I really want to get into the technology aspect because you went to teach them something that you knew that they didn't. And I yeah. want to know what impact that had on them once you left. First of all, uh, my first wife was from India. Uh, she was from Goa. So I had been there mm, once before, long time ago, you know, way before 2005. So uh, this was my first time going on my own and going for work. So I, I literally landed there with my backpack. I took nothing else with me. Literally, a backpack, a week's worth of clothing, my laptop, and that's it. I had left behind my house, cars, sold off all my belongings or given them away. And I just wanted to show up naked, you know, figuratively. I wanted to show up and go, well, who am I, right? Who am I really? I don't have the trapping to saying, I'm the guy that has this car and this house and this suit. And, you know, it's like, I don't have any of that, right? I just show up. It's like, who am I? Well, I'm clearly this expert engineer, so that's one thing I am. What religion am I? You know, what is my philosophical beliefs? Uh, what is my confidence? I don't. I can't even drive here. <laughs> <You know? laughs> I'm afraid to walk across the street. This is some scary stuff. Who am I? Um, so that was a process of discovery. Technically, uh, what I was teaching them was just everything. These are software engineers, so. They had gone through college, they have masters or, or even PhDs, but they don't have any practical experience in writing software. So it's, how do you work in a team? How do you control multiple people editing the same files? How do you file a bug? How do you give a presentation? How do you write a spec, your specifications? How do you test your software? And yeah, you need to test your software. The reason I was doing this was because that development center at that time only had a, not even a thousand people at that time. So when you add 300 new people in a single summer, you don't have enough mid-level or frontline managers to actually absorb those people. Because even those frontline managers were all there within the last six months, right? So even they don't know the ways of Microsoft yet. So you need someone who's experienced like me to come in and go, I have been at the company for quite some time. Here's how we do things. Right. So I'm training the managers at the same time that I'm also training the, the freshers, as we call them. So that was tremendous. And the other problem they had and the reason they wanted me to come and do that was they were having this revolving door of people. They would come in and within a year they'd leave because they'd come in and there was no formalized way of training them up and integrating them into the local, you know, engineering workforce. And they would leave because they're like, I don't have any lock in here. I didn't have any friends. They didn't show me much. I don't see my career growth and development. I'm feeling alone. I'm out. And this is a key thing that I learned that I use later when I created this program called Leap, which I did in India, 
You have a majority culture and you have a minority culture. The majority is the experienced engineers that are already on site. The minority is these college students. The college students come in and they're like, well, how do I integrate? You know, and then they don't find their integration and they just leave. If you bring them in in cohorts, and we had cohorts of like 100 at a time. So you have at least 99 friends. You have someone to go to lunch with. You have someone to commiserate with. You have someone to lean on when you're trying to find out answers to questions that you just can't figure out. Uh, so my recognition was that this social network was as important, if not more important, than the technical part of the job. Because the technical part, you'll learn, you'll pick up, I can teach you, whatever. But the social network, if, if you don't have friends when you come in the door, you'll be gone. That's true. Uh, so that's, that's what it was all about. So once we did all that, after the first uh, year or two, nobody left. The revolving door stopped. Uh, the reasons people left after that was because they were going off to get a PhD, or they got married and they needed to go somewhere else, or they were moving to the U.S., so we stopped the revolving door. People were much happier. And I have people today, you know, this is 2006. Today, people are like, hey, William, you were my first manager, you know, from <laughs> India. Uh, so yeah, there you go. Wow. Okay. So a couple of things I've captured out there because the cohort model, I think yeah. that that works for so many other issues. Yes. Not just a technical issue from a community issue, a societal issue from a right. coaching issue. Cohort model is something that works. And especially if you want lasting transformation. So I think you have found the solution to what they are calling the great resignation right now, Oh yeah, exactly. <laughs> which is the great uh, redirection. But what I yeah. really wanted to point out is because you talked about the fact that when you went in, they were educated, they were yep. knowledged up, they yep. had even PhDs, but yep. what was missing was the practical experience. Right. And I'm going to jump because I see this pattern happen in so many Caribbean countries and so many African countries where the model of knowledge, listen, if you talk about a certification, if you talk oh, about yes. a degree, a it. PhD, right? you know what I'm saying? <laughs> I got it. I got the PMP, CCC, NCIP, yep. whatever. We got it. I got when, the papers, but I don't it. know how to do anything. That's it. That's it. <laughs> and I know that you talked about being in Africa too. Yeah. So I want you to, with your background in insight and expertise, to talk about how we begin to shift this perspective, taking into consideration the entrepreneurship factor. Because you told us how to do this using the cohort model. That's one solution. And then how, how do we now factor in entrepreneurship? Because we're knowledged up, we're getting a cohort model, we're learning how, how to do practical experience now in a job, but then outside of being groomed for the job, how do we bring in entrepreneurship? Um, do you mean for the person who's trying to affect these changes or the people who are trying to just make it? The person who's trying to affect the change. Oh, okay. So if you're trying to be like me. That's right. Oh, okay. Be you. <laughs> yeah. So I'll, I'll give you just a, a brief history. So before I joined Microsoft, which I did in 1998, so that was 20 some odd years ago, I had my own company with my brother for about 12 years I was in that. Um, starting in 1984. So I've been an entrepreneur my entire life. Uh, I've always had that spirit of let's try this thing. Let's try this thing. 
sometimes you're thinking, let's try this thing. We're going to get rich, you know, and sometimes just let's just try this thing. Uh, so I'm in built entrepreneur mm. not everybody is because there's a certain amount of risk that is associated with that um, because you're afraid of losing your paycheck or, uh, or not getting paid at all if you're outside um, a big giant company. But it's, there's some drive inside, right, that you have some sort of uh, mission that you're looking at that you want to execute on. So I, I think it, it takes a certain amount of vision. Not everyone's a natural entrepreneur, but if you're going to do something off the beaten path, you better be clear about what it is, right? You can't be saying, I'm going to be an entrepreneur. It's like, well, what is that? Be specific. What is it you're trying to do? Is there some change you're trying to affect that isn't happening? With India, uh, I did that because the company asked me to do it. It wasn't just purely my own initiative, but how I did it was completely my own initiative. No one told me how to do it. All they said was go fix India. You know, <laughs> what's my budget? We'll tell you when you've spent too much, you know. And that was about it. There was no direction whatsoever. You know, mm-hmm. I just had to figure it all out. That's on me and that's on my vision. So I had to have a vision of well, what does this look like in five years, right? Mm-hmm. And then I had to construct that in the mind. And then I had to say, okay, so what are the steps we have to take to get there in five years? So you have to have some sort of vision because there's always detractors. There are plenty of people who are like, oh, you're not going to be able to, my own boss at that time, and this is a theme that occurs over and over again, said, you're probably not going to be very successful at that, right? With like, what? At transforming India into this uh, hotbed, non-revolving door, kick-ass development center. Yes. Right? It's like, well, yes, I am. <laughs> Thanks for the vote of confidence, buddy. <laughs> you know? Mm-hmm. And we wildly succeeded beyond anything they had expected um, us to be able to do. So I, I think there's things like that. You have to have a clear vision. You have to be able to uh, take the arrows in the back of all the detractors and ignore them. But you can't be so hard-headed that you don't see how the landscape is changing around you and that you have to be adaptable, right? Yes. It may turn out that your vision is uh, not possible, not feasible. So you got to adapt. Now, once the vision strays far enough from what you thought, you had to reevaluate and say, do I even want to do this? If I had met with too much resistance in India, I would have taken a step back and said, okay, this is not going to work. Mm-hmm. I'm going to go do something else because mm-hmm. there's no point in beating your head against the wall until you're bloody because no one cares. It's no true. one's going to look at you and say, oh, you poor guy, let me help you out. It's like, nope. So I got a question for you. What would you say would have been too much resistance? Um, well, let me say it in the way of how I got support. So the person who was the head of that development center, at least the guy who kind of built the place, he was on my side. He's the one who wanted me to be there. The second level managers or the top level managers, some of them were kind of resistant, but mostly they were like, yeah, this sounds good Mm -hmm. because I was doing them a favor, right? They didn't have a way to train up all these people. The people coming in the door were clearly like, yeah, yeah, you know, they all, they all wanted it. The frontline managers they were probably the most resistant, but theirs was more of a tactical resistance. I need butts and seat today. I, I can't wait five weeks. Like, mm-hmm. yes, you can, because if you don't train them in the way that I'm training them, it's going to take you three months before they're productive. So you will wait. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, if those guys had gone to the next level managers and said, absolutely not, we're not doing this. 
if they had fought like that, then I would have said, okay, we're not doing it. Because I cannot fight you and your managers because if you guys don't support this, it can't happen. Right. Right. You have to have skin in the game. Right. And your skin in the game is giving them to me for five weeks. Right. So I think it's like that. I go for mutuality. It cannot be I'm pushing something and nobody else wants it. It's like, why would I do that? Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. If y'all don't want it, then good luck. Mm-hmm. So definitely the the success model definitely i mean you're gonna have some detractors you're gonna have some resistance not too much but for the most part you'll have some some reception and you have that timing and that cohort model i'm just picking out all of the things that were your success yeah your success metrics on transforming that group in india you think it do you think that's something that you can replicate in other countries or have you yes. replicated it in other countries? Yeah, so after India, I went back to the the US uh, what was that 2009, 2010. Uh, did a whole bunch of stuff. And then 2015, I had an idea. I asked one of our, our uh, executives what's one of our biggest challenges and one of our business challenges. And at that time, uh, he said, oh, there's this whole diversity thing you know, and I went, oh, do tell. Now, keep in mind, until this point, until 2015, I, the word diversity uh, and what I should do about it wasn't in my mind, which seems kind of strange, being a Black guy in tech who's often been the only, you know, in every meeting since the dawn of man. Um, it just never really occurred to me. As strange as that seems, it just wasn't my time. But at that moment, when he said that, I won't say that I I woke up yet, but I went, oh, okay, yeah, that sounds interesting. Let me go figure that out, right? And I had always been a person who was like, you know, we need more women in tech because I was hiring engineers and I noticed there just weren't a lot of women engineers. So I went out of the way to do that. But I wasn't deep into the black thing, you know? the diversity thing and all that. It's like, nah, not really. But at that moment, I went, okay. And I went around the company. I thought, well, what are we doing? How are we hiring? Who are we hiring? What is the effort? But I went and said, what's, what's the thing? And, and we, we spend lots of money on pipeline, right? It's like, oh, these K through 12 programs and college, this, that, and the other thing. But it's disconnected from reality because we don't hire from those programs. We, they're, they're there, they're useful. They're beneficial, but it doesn't lead to direct hires. So I thought, what are we doing to directly hire women and minorities? Some stuff, but the classic trick of any tech company is we need more Blacks. Fire up the buses and head on down to the HBCUs, (laughs) right? That's the classic uh, move. And I thought, well, that's not uh, useful, but not sufficient. So I thought, well, where are the women? Where are the minorities? Uh, well, they're all over the place. They're coming from different careers. Ah, that's the problem. They don't have CS degrees. At that time, when we interview people, you look at the resume, if there's no CS degree, it was pretty much instantly in the trash Mm. because our job descriptions say CS degree required. And CS is computer science. Computer science, right? So I said, well, that's silly. Let's, Let's create an apprenticeship program where we explicitly go to places like coding academies or uh, community colleges and whatnot, because there's a lot of people who are switching careers or moms who have CS degrees, but they don't 
have a way back in because they haven't been coding for seven years or whatever because they're raising kids, right? Mm-hmm. And let's let's reevaluate the skill set we're looking at. And what we're looking at is, can they collaborate? Are they good problem solvers? Uh, how well do they handle adversity? Things like this, right? I can teach you to code. Now, a lot of people who've gone through coding academies, they've learned to code. Uh, they took their own money and their own time, and they said, I'm going to become a computer person. So they have the uh, desire, probably more so than the college grad coming out of MIT, who just kind of you know, fell through a path that was natural for them. You know, they, don't, they may or may not have desire, <laughs> but mm-hmm. these people, they're like, no, I'm going to spend lots of money, lots of time, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to nail this thing because I want in. So these people are way more motivated. And so we set up a program for them to come in. So this is how I uh, went about uh, activating on that whole thing. And and my awareness over time, as I went through a couple of cohorts of that was like, oh, now I get it. This went from a conversation of, should I do this? To, I must do this. Uh, This is a conversation my brother and I had. You know, I was talking to him early on before the very first cohort. And it was just like, oh, yes, now I see. I am a, a longtime tech guy, and tech is, is an uplifting force for our community. It can be. It's my responsibility to actually show up and say, hey, everybody, come along. This is the way. Yes. I'm no Martin Luther King, but we all have our moment that we're supposed to do what we're supposed to do. And this is what I was supposed to do. Right. And now I'm going forward from there. Now I'm more awake and more motivated. It's like, ah, now I know the game. And I am the guy who's supposed to do this part of it because the next person who can or wants to do it may be way over there or way back there or non-existent. So I'm the guy who's supposed to do this part right now. That's right. right. That's right. And, and here I am. So you've leveraged your influence in the technology space to create these cohort models, these apprenticeship models. Yeah. Um, and what type of impact has that made, uh, not just for the organization, but what impact has it made in the community that you intended to serve? I think it's tremendous. I mean, I I get emails all the time from people who've gone through the program and whether they work at Microsoft or not, which are just, hey, you've changed my life. I can now send my children to such and such schools. I can now get out of this abusive relationship I was in. I can now eat. Um, I have a completely different track in life. And that's the kind of intergenerational change we need. And the fact that these people get high paying jobs and they get stock in a company that's doing well and things like that, that is in fact how you do intergenerational stability and growth and, and wealth development. That's the exact kind of impact I wanted to have on that community. The Microsoft side of it is like, yeah, you know, we're going to hire more people. The bigger impact on that side has been transforming the way we look at hiring people. We've essentially used this program. uh, It's called LEAP. We use this program to train our managers on how to look at people differently. And having diversity really does have a tremendous impact. Mm-hmm. I mean, you're using technology basically as a bridge and it's bridging the gap on both sides. Yeah. I, I know before we started our conversation, you posed this phrase about 
using technology as a bridge between the Caribbean mm. and Africa. And I, I paused when I saw it because I was like, man, this guy's a genius. <laughs> so so, so t- talk to me about what you had in mind when you came up with that thought. Yeah. So, I mean, it's, it's no secret, but not everyone necessarily knows. Like a lot of my white colleagues don't understand or know the history of the African slave trade and how it relates to America and the Caribbean and all that sort of stuff. My understanding from when I was a child and reading the books and getting the lessons was the slave trade was essentially between Africa, the Caribbean and, you know, mainland America. You're taking slaves from Africa, you're landing them in the Caribbean, they're harvesting sugarcane, you know, then you're moving them over to uh, the mainland, perhaps to Atlanta and places like that, you know, and you're sending uh, rum back to England and rinse repeat. So that was a what I would call a triangle of despair. I look at that whole thing and say, well, that's, let's, let's modernize this. Instead of a triangle of despair, can we turn this into a triangle of prosperity? And 2017, I took a trip to um, Nigeria and Kenya uh, because a, a young brother in, in the company was like, you got to go to Africa. We got to have engineers there, blah, blah, blah. And they've been trying to get engineering there for like 10 years before that. So I'm not the first person who ever had this thought, but they, they just couldn't get over the hump. And I went on this trip and I was like, oh, okay, yeah, we got to do this. And what was lacking was having someone who could just say, I'm going to put engineers here because they're much lower level people. Um, I was at a high enough level that it's like, we're putting engineers here. That's it. And so we pushed and landed some people in um, Nigeria and Kenya. And now those are burgeoning development centers. Then a couple of years later, we have uh, a push to open up a development center in Atlanta. Had nothing to do with me. Uh, Other people were pushing it, but it makes sense because we have a lot of customers on the East Coast. It's like, oh, let's have a center over there. Hey, look, you can put it in a place where there so happens to be a lot of black and brown people. Well, there's only one more leg of that stool. It's the Caribbean. Let's go to the Caribbean. So I took a trip to uh, U.S. Virgin Islands, uh, St. Thomas, St. Croix. The Caribbean, generally speaking, is about 40 million people depending on how you count. That's enough. That's bigger than Germany. We have engineers in Germany. <laughs> Why don't we have engineers out here? And mostly it's because it's neglect. When you, if you do word association, you say the word Caribbean, people are going to think cruise ships, hurricanes, poor people. Yep. And that's the end of the conversation. They don't think, you know, out of 40 million people, there's perhaps a million super intelligent ones. They don't mm-hmm. think, well, if those people can live through hurricanes, Surely they can do something interesting in my development team. Talk about natural innovation. Yeah, innovation, (laughs) resilience. You know, I mean, Mm. they got it going on. They live a different life out there. And oh, yeah, by the way, they're all black and brown. They're not African-American. But it's a huge, diverse pot of people that we have zero engineering happening over there. Uh, So it's like, okay, let's pull this all together. Let's land engineering here. Let's do innovation here. And that completes the triangle of prosperity. I love that. I love that. Yeah. I mean, if I can have um, Africans connecting with Caribbeans, connecting with people in Atlanta, holding hands, that kind of fulfills uh, something. It gives us as uh, black and brown people an anchor of sorts. 
it's us all pulling together, right? It does. And it, and it feeds so much into the premise of this show, an understanding and, and unity, understanding and Black unity. Right. So I, I definitely wanted you to talk a little bit more about the development centers, like what is going on here? Like, what does that even mean? But before you do that, mm-hmm. the hump. Yeah. You were able to get over the hump. What was the hump? And I really want to hone in on this because many people have tried to get over the hump and many people are still trying to get over the hump, but you've gotten over it. So from, from being on the other side of the hump, (laughs) how'd you get over it? What was the hump for you? Yeah. Well, the hump was essentially getting over the well-meaning responses that you get when you go to executives and ask them to do something that's obviously good. And I'm not blaming them. It's just the way of bureaucracies. You know, when you're in any large organization, you run into this thing where it's like, you know, you go on up and you meet everybody. You, yeah, we want to go to Africa. They're like, yeah, talk to my people. Talk to my people. No, talk to my people. And suddenly you're outside the door again and nothing's happening. Ground zero. <laughs> you go back to the exact. It's like, yeah, man, I talked to your people and nothing happened. And, you know, we're trying, okay, set up a meeting set up a meeting and then you're outside the door again, right? So that's the wall that you face. And this is true of anything you want to do. It has, it's not because it's a, a diversity, anything. It's just the way bureaucracies work. You have to get to a point of direct action where you can actually do something without somebody else super high up worrying about it and giving you permission to do it. You just have to be mm-hmm. able to do it. In this particular case, since I was running, I was still running the LEAP program at the time, and we had a little bit of discretionary income um, because the way we set that up, people were actually just giving us money. So I could say on my own, without anyone's permission, I'm going to go land a couple of engineers over there. Now, it wasn't just me. I also had enough street cred or influence to go to Microsoft Research. And I knew someone there. I said, hey, we're going to Africa uh, we think this would be great for you to come to, are you in? And they're like, yeah, William, we trust you. We're in. We're, we're in for this adventure. So there's four more engineers. Uh, we went on a, a recruiting trip with people in office, you know, the guys who make Word and Excel, all that stuff. Hey, we're headed over here. You guys are already recruiting. How about you land eight engineers in Africa? Like, yeah, okay. Yeah, we'll, we'll try that out. Sure. Why not? Right. So now you've got suddenly maybe 12 engineers that we can land in Africa. And we started in Kenya and there was already a sales office there. So it's like, okay, you can sit here and, you know, here's the work that you're going to do. So while we're doing that, and the reason to do that is to show the company, look, we know what to pay these people. We have demonstrated that there are viable people here. Those people Mm -hmm. have friends. We've proven that the college is generating enough people to make this interesting. They're not all super skilled, but we know how to skill them up. So we cracked the, cracked the code, if you will, and did all the groundwork such that the next team that has to come along, they're like, oh, you already did all the hard work. You've removed the doubt. And that's what my little push was about, was removing the doubt. You know, because before that, people would just think Africa, what, you know, same as the Caribbean, Africa. Exactly. That dry place, right? It's like, you realize Africa's 54 countries. So William, let me ask you then. So you did this thing in India, you went to the Caribbean, you went to Kenya and Nigeria. Were there any similarities in terms of 
skilling up yeah. people once you were there? Or, you know, like, what do you now know that you didn't when you actually went there? Yeah, there's simple things. It's not a super complex formula. Uh, when I was in India, the program there was called Leap. When I came back to the U.S. and we started this whole thing uh, about hiring women and minorities, it was also called Leap. You know, I just repurposed the name again. When we did stuff in Africa, that was driven by the Leap program. The Caribbean is not driven by Leap, but the methodology is the same. The cohort model, because it's the social construct that you have to have. And then whether you're getting volunteers or paid people to train. So the model of having some upfront training and then an apprenticeship after that. That model is uh, pretty much the same across all of those. And then in the Caribbean, we're adding another component, which is how we show up as a company, who we interact with, the governor, the university, the local community. So how we integrate with the community. So we show up, and I explicitly said this in a big forum, we are not the new colonialists. We're not here to rape, pillage, and plunder. We're here to be community members. We humbly submit to you. This is what we have to offer. Can we help you fulfill your dreams? Right? I love that. That's I a critical that piece so for a giant company like us mm-hmm. to go into a place. You have to go in with humility and not just show up because if you don't, then it's just going to be, all right, you're here to take from us like all the other people have taken from us exactly. for the last couple centuries. But it's like, no, that stops now. And this was explicit in Africa where we said, You cannot execute a brain drain strategy here. If you're coming here, it's because you're going to land at 10 or more engineers here. You know, we will fight you tooth and nail if you come in and try to take out 20, 30 engineers on some recruiting trip, because that's that's like slavery, right? You showed up with a slave ship, you loaded people up and you took them away. You're draining their local community. That makes no sense. High-tech, high-tech slavery. Yes, high-tech slavery. It's like you're taking the best and brightest, removing them from their community so that community is bereft of any intelligence to get further along. That's Mm -hmm. not a holistic way of thinking about the world, right? It's damaging that community and you're incrementally adding to your your own uh, benefit, but not so much as you're damaging them. So these are the things that I've learned over time. And as we do the Caribbean, next is Brazil or Micronesia or Cambodia or Laos or Detroit, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> or Chicago. Exactly. So you're, Detroit, for sure. You're developing a methodology, not just in how you train people and find them and all that, all that but also how you interact with the community and take it as a community mission, not as just a... Microsoft is going to come rape, pillage, and plunder, right? I mean, it's like, ah, that's not our mission. That's not our company mm-hmm. values. So let's not do it that way. I think this is an incredible brand, um, the Microsoft Development Centers in the different communities, connecting the different countries. And I mean, quite frankly, we are in a borderless world. I mean, yeah. multicultural world. And these are skills of today, yeah. not tomorrow, but today. So I think it's a, an incredible approach. And it's a very relevant strategy. Before we begin to wrap up, I definitely want to touch back on something you said, because I am listening to your prowess, your executive prowess, your resilience, your persistence, your your presence. And you said for a long time, you were the only, the only Black man. And what I read about you is that your perspective 
towards the barriers that are present that are existing it's just reality not to get consumed by the fact that you were the only in many uh situations at at one point you said it was just a part of the background noise how did you get to that oh being able to just push it back yes i'll give you an example of someone who was not able to push it back i met one uh gentleman who came through the leap program and everything to him was, was a black thing. Just everything, no matter what it was, no matter how big or small or sideways, whatever, everything came down to this, this is because I'm black. It may or may not be, but you're not going to make any progress if that's how you're going to go about things. Now, that is not to say that you need to cover or, you know, cowtown or don't talk in your deep black voice. You know, you don't need to do any of that. But you can't get hung up on that or you won't progress. Now, it may be that you're in that state where you're like, well, if I need to ignore a bunch of things, I don't want to progress. Like, okay, this may not be the game for you. For me, I have a a higher, broader view of what can be done with tech. So I don't want to walk away from it. Why should I? I mean, Black people have been innovative and creative for centuries you know, we're inventors too. Hello. So why should I walk away from the world's greatest economic growth development tool we have in this century? I want to get mine. So the hindrance to me getting mine might be my attitude. So I need to modulate and learn how to bob and weave and work through the system and not get, you know, every light punch that comes my way, I'm knocked on my ass, right? It's like, oh, he called me a name I didn't like. It's like, okay, Bob, weave, now get back in it. You got to move. You have a mission. You, this is what I said in the beginning, right? You have a mission. You got to hustle. It's not going to be handed to you. Nothing is handed to you. You do not deserve anything, right? This is a competitive world. You got to go get yours. So in a competitive world, you have to say, all right, I see all this stuff. Now I look at a lot of stuff that comes out that's racist and all this, and I just kind of laugh because I see the game, right? It's like, oh, I see what you're doing. Yeah, yeah. This is the part where you try to denigrate me and make me feel bad about myself. So I go home and smack my kids so that they don't grow up right. You know, it's like, no, nah. <laughs> I see what you're doing. I know what the programming is. You don't even realize what the programming is, but I do. So I'm going to bob over here and weave over here and like, yeah, I heard your name. Now I'm going over there. I love that. I absolutely love that. You said a power nugget, a powerful power nugget, because understanding that system and being able to navigate, we're not denying the reality of what is present. But if you are consumed with it and you don't have what you said is that vision, because that vision, that mission is something that's bigger than you. It's driving you then you can miss out on all the opportunities that technology has to offer today. They're distractions and you have to be able to see through the distractions. And you can't do that if your vision was handed to you by somebody else. So can you say that again? Say that again. again. You're going to be all these things in our world. There's many distractions, right? And you can't navigate through that if you're handed your vision from somebody else. You need to find your own vision, your own voice, your own way. And that's how you get forward. At least that's how I operate, right? It's like, uh, I'll just give you some practical examples. The vision of the the American dream, 
the vision is you're going to get a house. You're going to have two and 2.3 kids, 2.5, 2.5 kids. You're going to have this kind of car. You're going to have all these bottles because that's the American dream. It's like uh, my daughter, my oldest daughter, 26 year old says that doesn't work for me. You guys broke that dream. So forget that. That does not work. I'm doing this. So you got to look at that thing and say, is that my dream? Or was that Massa's dream? What's my dream? What is my dream? Now, they told me my dream was 40 acres and a mule. Well, is that my dream? <laughs> I don't think so. What is my dream? My dream is to conquer space. My dream is to uh, create robotics. My dream is to tame machine learning and artificial intelligence to serve man rather than be subjugated by it, right? My dreams. And this is why that process of self-discovery and communal discovery is so important. What is our African-American Black people in the world dream? What is it? I don't know. I don't know if we have a dream. I don't know if we had a dream since Martin Luther King, right? He had a dream. I don't even we know if that's one, my Tim dream. <laughs> we got a dream too. <laughs> we got a dream We got too. a dream too. Yes. And we got a dream in modern day terms. You know, I, mm-hmm. I actually made this commentary to someone I work with uh, where I said, you know what? Since the 60s, we, we don't have the Martin Luther King. We don't have that, you know, Cornel West is getting old and Martin Luther King is gone and Malcolm X is gone. You know, all those leaders are gone. The leadership we've had since then, and I won't even call it leadership, the icons we've had since then are sports and entertainment. We have one or two who are business guys, mostly sports and entertainment. Did we all know that there's a National Society of Black Physicists? Nope. What are they doing? What are their dreams? We're smart people. What are they doing? Well, they're just trying to get jobs. So I think we we need to uh, reconnect. And in this world where we're all connected, like you said, time and space and borders are kind of non-existent. Here we are talking. I don't even know where you are, but we're talking and we see each other and we hear each other and we can inspire each other. And I think we have to leverage that to reestablish a new dream. If we find the, uh, the black cohort of the world, if you will, right? How do we hold hands together? And then let's dream together, right? Because that's what everyone else is doing. Wow. 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 I could literally interview you for 10 more hours because you are a wealth. <laughs> you are a wealth of knowledge. We're going to definitely have to do a part two because you just said something just now when you talked about the physicists. Oh, they're looking for a job. And I read something where you talked about integrity. Tequity. Tequity. Oh, I'd love Tequity. to get into that too. Okay, <laughs> we're going to tease the audience. We're going to tease them because when you come back for part two, they are definitely going to be in for a treat. So I just want to say thank you so much for taking time out to share your wisdom and your insights for my audience that's listening. Just recapping. Listen, William told us about the journey of self-discovery about getting silent, about sitting, about re-evaluating. And if you have been conditioned with that story that you got to work twice as hard to get half as much, you can change the story. You can change the story, replace the story. You are good enough. And, and another thing that William shared that I picked out is travel light. When you're going through that new journey, 
travel light. He only took his backpack yeah. and literally fig- figuratively, figuratively not literally, <laughs> showed literally. up naked. Okay, a, a completely new paradigm new shift. Culture. And I see this as a common thread, especially through some of my other interviews about this new paradigm shift, because once you begin to do that for yourself, it impacts the way you are able to advocate for other people as well. Right. Touching on that space of you may be all knowledge up, but you cannot intellectualize your way to success. You definitely need to have some hands-on practical experience. So make sure that you understand how to be successful with using a cohort model. And if you don't know what that is, you can reach out to William. He can tell you all about it and give you some tools to set up for success. All right. So if they want to reach out to you, where can they connect with you? Where can they find you? There is a website, william-a-adams.com. Uh, it's kind of fledgling right now, uh, but that's where I'll put all the links and there's my Twitter link and my LinkedIn link and all that stuff is going to be there. Oh, fantastic. Well, thank you once again. And for all my listeners of Bridge to You, until next time, take care and be well. Thanks for listening to the Bridge to You podcast. Visit ClaireCommunicationSolutions.com or connect with me on LinkedIn, Monique Russell, or Instagram at ClearCommunicationCoach. This podcast is heard along the Marketing Podcast Network. For more great marketing podcasts, visit MarketingPodcasts.net.